The other evening I went to the North Monastery Christian Brothers School here in Cork City, where a pageant was being presented to commemorate the life, work and death of two of its past pupils. Inside the main door of the school I looked over some half-dozen display cases which contained letters, photographs, certificates and other reminders of these two men who, one-time pupils at the Mon, were to become Lord Mayors of the City of Cork, the city which lay in a hazy hollow behind them as they made their way to classes with the Christian brothers before the turn of the century. The younger of the two was Thomas McCurton, born at Ballyanhochain, Ballynochan, between Cork and Mallow, on the 20th of March, 1884. And a strange thing about it, the 20th of March was, for Thomas McCurton, both his birthday and, twas to, the day he was to die. He came to live and continue his schooling in the city when he was 13 years old. He was of a family of 12, six boys and six girls. A family which, we are told, was conscious of a tradition, a Fenian tradition, and conscious too of Gaelic Ireland. Tomás Og, Macartain. Well, it's an extraordinary thing that while the Gaelic tradition was still kept in his family, and that they had it very close, and that there was uh, Liam Macartain Aduna, one of the local poets there, was an ancestor of his. Incidentally, Liam Macartain Aduna fought at the Boyne. He brought his own lads up and they fought at the Boyne and brought his own men back again, which wasn't bad at all in those days, you see. But that uh, he did have that love and even his brothers in later years had it, although they didn't have the language like he had at all. But it developed and I think that he handled love from home and from his home surroundings because the language was then, as now, uh, a more natural growth in rural areas, in my opinion. Anyway. Mm-hmm. The language is still, no matter what development has come, it is still inclined to be uh, an artificial growth in the cities. When he was 17 years old, Thomas McCartan joined the Gaelic League in Cork City, the Blackpool branch of the League, and thus he began to move deeper in his understanding of the nation's history, its strivings, its language, and its dreams of a united independent unit. From his joining the Gaelic League in 1901 until his death in 1920, his love for the language was a steady feature of his makeup, and this was to help to identify all that was truly of the ideal Ireland for him, and thus the more to justify, as it happened in his later years, his demands for the people of Ireland. In the Gaelic League, branch he had an orchestra formed, and he himself played the violin. Irish music was another strong love of his, and he collected many Irish songs, which he copied, as the monks of old would do, copied with care and fine, clear script. A favourite song of his, I am told, was Thrascotian Nog. Later or Mandir, as is even Lomond Lor, Marveach Lohine Queen Cogarhar Magoon, Ryadhun Melinge, Nogoskili Memahiol, Iskano Niter Machristin Slan Anun. Ni tir the nomotsija, no lehe lum the bear, ach tir ve lawn the haran of them hoid. Marbadon fail a crea, idir he he vinch a foil, is on the tom of real, got tir no nog. A strange thing, you will gather different facets of a man's life or of a man's character from different people. From those who met him as a, an administrator, from those who met him as a Gaelic enthusiast from those who met him as a musician, and from those who met him as a soldier. But principally, it was his character as a soldier, which I gathered, because the people with whom I associated 
as a boy and as a young man and later were his actual comrades in the field and the thing that came comes across mostly to me from them is something which you really don't get in a book or in a portrayal on the stage because somehow on the stage people portraying his life particularly the last three months when he was lord mayor they know that the shadow of death was over him and that actually the man speaking there is a walking dead man but of course in real life that wasn't the case because he was he wasn't a gloomy man or what you'd say uh, a very important man in his own way he was just a small lively merry little man but inside that there was a fierce driving determination and a core of steel determination which is really not visible to the man outside but was visible and very plainly visible to the men who soldiered with him. How did your mother speak of him uh, through the years afterwards then? Did she, was she this kind? Well, she, she, one of the things she would say very often was this, you have every right to be proud of your father but you know I was a fiend before I ever met your father which was true and the type of person she was that for example when my father came home and told her that he was going forward for the Lord Mayoralty she said but Tomas you're not a politician you're a soldier because she knew he had refused to go forward in 1918 when they wanted to put him fire for the dial and he said well he said I've got my orders and I have to do it and as turns McSweeney after him it was more as a soldier going into the breach than as an administrator and uh, the impression that I've got isn't so much an impression as a, as a conviction that from the first meeting of the corporation when he was instrumental in transferring the allegiance of Cork Corporation from the British Crown to Dial Airden, he knew his death warrant was signed and to give you an example of the, the type of man he was there's a story told by some of the old lads that he was writing in the city hall one day and apparently had already got a death warning from the police and one man came in and he said Tomas, he said, we have a definite from the intelligence crowd the next policeman to be shot, they'll shoot you and he just looked up for a moment and said very interesting and carried on with his work Tomas McCartan spent a time as organiser and teacher with the Gaelic League in North and East Munster in the early part of the century and he returned eventually to the city, Cork City, where he continued as teacher. It was as a teacher he met his future wife, Eilish Welch. They both met, met at the Gaelic League and he was the teacher and she and three sisters attended but we was we quizzed her a lot about not being terribly good at Irish and she said that her sisters won all the prizes but that she concentrated on the teacher and they got married <laughs> very good <laughs> but um, they were very very happy of course he was in and out of jail most of the time and Fortunately, he married a woman who felt the same way about Ireland as he did, and there was that indefinable something between them that they didn't need to explain things to each other. And when he was in jail, he wrote many letters, most of them which I have at home, and said that the one thing that was a great consolation to him in all the years he had to spend in and out of jails was that he always knew that he could depend on her loyalty and her understanding. Oh, that when he was OC of prisoners, 
uh, he had a lot of trouble with men getting abusive letters from their wives, naturally enough and understandably enough, uh, saying, well, you should be here instead of being in jail for Ireland, that your family is your first allegiance. But that didn't arise in the case of my father and mother. Sheelani Cortoyne and son. Two years after Sinn Féin was formed in Cork, Tomás McCurtain joined. That was in 1907, and in a little time he was an area of influence within it, supporting the theory of Irish economic and industrial independence. He was, of course, very much for the language revival, and emigration and the related social ills he also kept before his mind. He didn't believe in industry. He was a businessman. He didn't believe that you could combine a free, united Gaelic Ireland, and I say Gaelic Ireland, with an economic structure that would give social justice for all, mm-hmm. without interference, and that our own people could live in our own country and develop their own traits, their own characteristics, without necessarily being absorbed. Tomás McCartan was also a member of the IRB in Cork. Throughout the, all this, he was very busy teaching Irish at Dún, Dún which for a period was the centre or hub of nationalist Cork. The Dún was an extraordinary little group uh, because they had their own playwrights, they had their own writers, they had their own orchestra, they had their own uh, uh, theatrical people, you know, and that in that he, he developed, along with the others, they all, one helping the other, they all developed their knowledge because really they started off not knowing all that much, but that they learned together. Like people, as I mentioned, like in particular Donal O'Kirk, you know, who was a wonderful inspiration afterwards, to some young Irish writers like uh, Frank O'Connor and Sean O'Feeley and those, he was really their father, and it was in the dune he started with them. 1913 brought the birth of the volunteers in Cork, and Tomás was on the first committee, where his qualities as organiser and leader of men were given scope. The year after, that was 1914, we had the First World War, and the split in the volunteer movement in the city here as elsewhere, came about with Thomas McCartan opting for outright independence and separation from England. Then, two years afterwards, the rising in Dublin City of 1916 had not a similar action in Cork for a number of reasons, not least of which was a failure in communications. Thomas McCartan was among those imprisoned after 1916 and he spent a Christmas away from home writing to his family here in Cork. And when he was interned in Reading uh, in, after 1916, they were all sent to England and they were in various prison camps in Reading and Ledbury and so on. Uh, there's a letter at home and it's very funny because she obviously got a tooth out and she said, Daddy, here is my tooth in a box. And that was sent away and he wrote her a very, very nice letter thanking her for the tooth and hoping that she hadn't suffered too much in getting it out. But he was he, he always had plenty of time to write these very nice human little notes to his family. Unfortunately, I, I didn't receive any because I wasn't able to write at the time. <laughs> it was while in jail in England at this time, too, towards the end of 1916, that he sent a Christmas message to his only son, Tomás, who was, at the time, one and a half years old. In writing it, it was as if he willed the years by to the time when his son, his only son, could read. And 
Tommaso Mukartan still has this letter, and he read it for me some days ago. Tommaso Mukartan, Elinus Mukri, Ta Ahas El Mukri is El Magne, Tosa de Ve Agam Sawalje, Iminutse, and Nolig Van Hisho. Tam Jain Hoch, Koma, Gowil Antahas Kiana Er de Wahir, Agusti Shemuri, Gugignoher Gudio. Eran Gurum, Agasan Ara Eta, Eg the Wahar Yilish Akurtatinish, it oige, nor Nafil Ed Homus Ero the Yen of Dutchvein. The Gram of Ridat, Wahar, Agas Div the Lear, Otahir. The volunteers in Cork continued after 1916 with McCartan in command of the number one Cork Brigade, and in the troubled years before 1920 his duties were many. Dedication was his energy. The local elections of 1920 brought 40 members of Sinn Féin onto the city corporation and when the time came in 1920 to elect a Lord Mayor, Thomas McCartan was elected. He quickly moved a resolution that this Council of the Co- County Borough of Cork at its first meeting after election in 1920 hereby records its recognition of Doyle Aaron as the lawful, legal and constitutional parliament of the Irish nation and recognises the executive of the Doyle as the lawful government of this country. His courage was beamed too on the poor conditions of the workers in Cork and he sought to raise the standard of living. The one photograph of McCartan taken on March the 17th, 1920, that was on Patrick's Day, 1920, a photograph I saw recently, he is seen smiling as he drives the first Fordson tractor assembled here in Cork. Already, all round him, he was being recognised as a man of integrity and he was admired by all, even by those on, let's say, the other side of the fence in public affairs in the Cork of the time. Sir John Scott said of McCartan that he was a man of great business capacity, independence of character, absolute honesty of purpose, kindness of heart and determination to do only good for those around him. On the 20th of March 1920, three days after the photograph on the tractor, it was to have been a big day for him in his home at 40 Thomas Davis Street, Cork. It would have been his 36th birthday. However, the 20th of March was so changed for the same household. The papers of that day had the story. Early this morning, the Lord Mayor of Cork was shot dead by disguised men who forced their way into his house after the door had been opened by his wife. His lordship received two wounds in the chest and died in a short time. And I come down along the report and I read, Mrs. McCartan then opened the door, when she was rudely brushed aside by two men who carried revolvers, wore caps and had blackened faces. These men were followed by two more who carried rifles and had their faces similarly disguised, whilst four more men entered the shop, two taking charge of the door and prevented... Mrs. McCartan from going upstairs or leaving the shop at all. The two men who led the party and who were described as tall and young apparently proceeded upstairs, uh, followed by the two men who carried rifles. They knocked at the door of Mr. McCartan's bedroom and inquired if he were inside. And the Lord Mayor replied that he was about dressing himself and would see them in a moment. They said, come out here. And Lord Mayor McCartan, leaving his room, wearing his pants and nightshirt, was then confronted by his assailants who, without question or warning, fired two revolver shots at him. A moan was heard and the Lord Mayor was seen to fall backwards on the landing. And 
So in the spring of 1920, Tomás McCotton was gone. The inquest that followed was conducted by Coroner J.J. McCabe, and it held from 97 witnesses, lasting almost a month. It concluded on April the 17th with the following unanimous verdict. We find that the late Alderman McCorton, Lord Mayor of Cork, died from a shock and hemorrhage caused by bullet wounds, and that he was willfully murdered under circumstances of the most callous brutality, and that the murder was organised and carried out by the RIC, officially directed by the British Government. And we return a verdict of willful murder against David Lloyd George, Prime Minister of England, Lord French, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Ian Macpherson, late Chief Secretary of Ireland, Acting Inspector General Smith of the RIC, Divisional Inspector Clayton of the, of the RIC, District Inspector Swansea, and some unknown members of the RIC. We strongly condemn the system at present in vogue of carrying out raids at unreasonable hours. We tender to Mrs. McCotton and family our sincerest sympathy. We extend to the citizens of Cork our sympathy in the loss they have sustained by the death of one so eminently capable of directing their civic administration. Terence McSweeney was the fifth of a family of seven. He was born in Cork, in the city. And his destiny brought him stride for stride with Thomas McCotton, eventually taking up the task when Thomas had been stricken down. And I come here more as a soldier stepping into the breach than an administrator to fill the first post of the municipality, he said to members who elected him Lord Mayor. This was his first speech as Lord Mayor, part of his first speech, and it was afterwards to be one of the four charges against him when he was arrested and tried in August of 1920, and he was elected Lord Mayor at the end of March. Threlock Moxfina was part of the literary revival at the start of the century. He consciously steeped himself in the ideals of Tone and Emmett and Mitchell, a free island, this he worked for, and this work meant reading, writing and searching for reasons and sifting his objectives forming his own principles which he would ch chain himself to, working always towards a free island. He studied and he earned a BA through evening courses at UCC, a BA in Mental and Moral Science. This was in 1907. He was a disciplined person, self-imposed discipline it was, so that all the better then he could write and debate and talk on his nationalism, with Thomas McCotton, Terence McSweeney was a staunch member of the Volunteers, and when Thomas McCotton was shot, McSweeney became Vice-Commandant of the Cork No. 1 Brigade. He was imprisoned for various terms in 1916, in 1917, and in 1918. And while he was confined in compulsory exile in Bromway in England, he married. Mrs Geraldine Neeson, who was bridesmaid at the wedding, remembers him from this period. Tall and very dark, always a lock of thick black hair hanging over his forehead, 
and rather hooded eyes, but um, they'd open rather sleepily and then they were certainly quite a blaze at you. Two long lines down each side from his nose to his mouth, very thoughtful looking, very sweet smile, as sweet as a horrid word, I don't mean saccharine, but a really very pleasant smile. In, in a way an ungainly walk, he always wore his overcoat flying open, flying back. Reading of Terence McSweeney, we meet a reserved person, a tireless worker, a preacher of separatism, a man who possessed an acute social conscience, a fact revealed in his writings. We meet to a man of a self-trained will, and we meet a man with a strange destiny. Mrs. Neeson remembers being in the McSweeney house with her late husband, Sean, and the McSweeney sisters, and Terry himself. He was there with his bodyguard, a man, a big burly man named Donovan. And it was a sort of party and a lot of journalists were there. I suppose there were about 15 to 20 people altogether. And this lady, a South African, uh, it was discovered that she could read palms. And of course, we all had to have our palms read naturally. But uh, when Terry and his bodyguard had left then, this lady turned to his sister, Mary McSweeney, the elder one, and said, place a special guard onto your brother. She said, something dreadful is in his hand. I couldn't say it to him. Oh, well, said Mary, he's always got his bodyguard, night and day, he's never alone. She said, nothing can happen in that way, except what we're expecting every few minutes that he will be shot or something. It's not that, she said. It's not an ordinary death. It's not just a shooting or um, anything in the ordinary way. It's something terrible. It's long, it's protracted, it's dreadful. She said, I have never known of a death like it, but it is coming and soon. The soon in question was to be the 12th of August, 1920. Terence McSweeney was a striking success as Lord Mayor of Cork from the moment he took office in March of that year. A rest came for him in the evening time, and he, with ten others, were imprisoned. They were arrested at the City Hall in Cork. They immediately went on hunger strike, and on the 15th of August, three days later, all were released except Terence McSweeney. The following morning, he was court-martialed. And here's the account of that court-martial taken from the Cork Examiner of the 17th of August. A district court-martial over which... Lieutenant Colonel James, South Staffordshire Regiment, presided, assembled at Victoria Barracks, Cork, yesterday when the following charges were preferred against the Right Honourable Turnus McSweeney, Lord Mayor of Cork. 1. Without lawful authority or excuse being in possession of a cipher on August the 12th, which cipher was the numerical cipher issued to the RIC. 2. Having this under his control. 3. Being in possession of a document containing statements likely to cause disaffection to His Majesty. This document was the resolution, an amended one, passed by the Corporation acknowledging the authority of and pledging allegiance to Doyle Aidan. 4. Copy of the speech the Lord Mayor made when elected as successor to Lord Mayor McCotton. The court having passed judgment, the President announced the findings, and these were not guilty on the first charge and guilty on the second, third and fourth. When the President announced these findings, the Lord Mayor said, 
I wish to state that I will put a limit on any term of imprisonment that you may impose as the result of the action I will take. I have taken no food, food since Thursday, therefore I will be free in a month. To which the President replied, on, on sentence to imprisonment you will take no food? The Lord Mayor said, I simply say that I have decided the terms of my detention, whatever your government may do. I shall be free, alive or dead, within a month. He was then sentenced to two years' imprisonment, and of this he served 73 days, without food and without falter. He died on the 25th of October in 1920. During his fast in Brixton Prison in England, notes were made by his chaplain, Father Dominic, OSFC, and I quote from these. During all the time he was confined in Brixton Jail, Lord Mayor McSweeney remained in bed and kept as still as possible. This he did with a view to preserve his life and conserve his strength as long as he could. Though prepared to die and quite willing to offer his life for his country and his principles, yet he was not anxious to die. He was anxious to live to see our flag saluted by the nations of the earth. But if his life were necessary to hasten the day of its accomplishment, he was quite willing to offer his life. But every ounce of value he could get out of his earthly existence he was determined to get to use it for Ireland's benefit. His sufferings no pen could write. Try and conceive the pain you suffer in your shoulders and back, and in your knees, the stiff numbing pain in the calves of your legs, the agony in your heels, instep and ankles, and on your back. Try to visualise these if you remain for even a quarter of an hour outstretched on your back. What a relief to bend your knees and draw them up towards your body. But even this little relief our heroic soldier could not have, for the flesh had wasted from his knee joints and the weight of the clothes on them was insupportable. There, not for a quarter of an hour, but for over seventy days did he endure that suffering, and these were pains and torments added to the pain of hunger itself. I heard it said many a time that after the first few days the pangs of hunger left one, and the desire for food ceased. For that reason I questioned him several times during the long fast, even the day before he became unconscious. And up to that very day he had a desire for food and would give a thousand pounds for a cup of tea, as he said himself. As the blood supply became less for want of nourishment, neuritis set in, and this was accompanied by violent heart attacks and equally acute headaches, leading to gradual blindness and dullness of hearing. Add to all this the continued mental strain of seeing his wife, sisters and brothers daily. This, while a comfort in one way, was a great distress in another, for it made him see and think of the sorrow of parting from them, and the suffering that they themselves were undergoing. But he never complained, never flinched. He knew he was risking a slow lingering death and he was ready for it. He even thanked God for giving him the chance of a long preparation for death. It's often asked, you know, how one could muster the bravery to make a decision such as Terence McSweeney made. I've often wanted to answer that question because the young people today ask it a good deal, some of them rather cynically, and uh, I get terribly saddened. You don't ask any soldier how can he leave his wife and family? We were fighting a war. It wasn't a war with um, guns and big explosives and all the rest of it. It had to be on a smaller scale, but and it had to be fought on several levels. Terence McSweeney had said if he were arrested illegally, as and of course he was, that he would go on a hunger strike. This was known to everybody. He was arrested and he went on hunger strike. 
as for the accusation that it was futile, that's utter nonsense, because in at the time I was with his, him, I was with his wife all through the hunger strike. I suppose every newspaper in the world had a representative in London, and there wasn't a country in the world that hadn't his eyes fixed on Ireland, and the case of Ireland was before the world to be judged at that time. I don't see how people can ask this cynical question. He was a soldier, and he fought in the only way he could. He couldn't come off the hunger strike once he had made his mind up. For this programme, my thanks go to Thomas O'Lecher, Horn Vedekorki, Sheelani Kortoin, Geraldine Neeson, Jendrini Guir, Thomas Ogma Kortoin, Sean Hendrick, Liam Rachel, Agus Padigal Madin.